Welcome to the Splat Zones. We are a monthly video cast slash podcast dedicated to bringing you the best antenna related topics. I am your host, Nice1983, and a few months ago I had the immense pleasure of interviewing Blake J. Harris and we discussed the console wars in great detail. The reason I bring this up is because the console wars of the 90s was literally the most divisive era in video game history, and in the end, only one of the armies engaging in the war would win. To quote Walter Benjamin, History is written by the victors, and Nintendo definitely took that opportunity in stride, but Blake's book, Console Wars, pulled back the curtain and showed many gamers that there was truly another side to this war, a side with soldiers who followed their general into battle where they were outmanned and outgunned. If not for the sheer cunning of the Sega of America presidents, Sega wouldn't have had a chance in hell. Today is my great honor to speak with former Sega of America president Tom Kalinske and to get his perspective on those days and the war that Sega waged on Nintendo. But guys... I do have to be 100% honest. We did have some audio issues with this episode. um, And even though those issues exist, I felt like this interview was too good to just go ahead and completely scrap. And Tom took time out of his very busy schedule to go ahead and give us this interview. So it just felt wrong to not go ahead and bring the interview to you. That being said, we do promise that from here on out, we here at the Splat Zones will do everything in our power to make sure that we can get the audio quality of any interview that we do to sound as good or better than every single individual episode of the, of the Splat Zones. We promise quality over quantity. That's why we're a monthly show. But guys, like I said, this interview was too good to just throw away. So I hope you enjoy, and thank you. All right. So the first thing I want to say is, Welcome. Um, we are very, very excited to, to be speaking with you. You are literally a living legend. <laughs> That's kind of you to say. Um, and with that, my first question is, you had a huge influence on the early part of my childhood, from He-Man, Matchbox, and even Flintstones Vitamins. And I, <laughs> I find it amazing that you were able to do all that before making Sega your home. What were those pre-Sega days like? Because you were working for Giants. Yeah, and I was always really lucky uh, in that I had mentors who really guided me in my career, and uh, that helped an awful lot. And secondly, the people that were in the companies I've been involved with were just terrific people. I did not know any of these things until I read Blake's book, and I was like, no way. Master of the Universe was literally the earliest portion of my childhood. And Flintstones Vitamins... I would not eat any of my veggies, and the only way for me to get any of those vitamins was was through those vitamins. And, <laughs> and you know, my parents, you know, if I was going to take a vitamin, it had to be the Flintstones chewables. So it was really funny to find all this stuff out. And even Matchbox, I don't know a little boy who doesn't have toy cars. Right, right. So that's all pre-Sega. I just want to, you know, jump into a little post-Sega. So you were like the CEO of LeapFrog... Uh, that's really cool, uh, and you also kind of, in the book at least, it, ex- it showed that you expressed interest in a, uh, an educational video game device that Sega had been working on. I think it was called the Pico? Yes, so the Pico was a child's first computer, Yeah, and uh, it was really a really good educational product. Yeah, so my question is, is education through video games just something you uh, always felt passionately about once you had gotten into this uh, medium? Well, it's something that uh, it dawned on me one day at Sega. So I thought, well, why can't we do that with, with 
uh, education. Why can't we make educational curriculum as fun and interesting and uh, involving as a video game? So that thought really came to me while I was at Sega. And the first thing we started, I was fortunate enough to be able to work on was the Pico product. And then when I was recruited out of Sega uh, by Mike Milken and Larry Ellison to form something called Knowledge Universe, the second company we got involved with was LeapFrog when it was only doing about $3 million in, in uh, revenue. And so we, we bought the company and I went in as CEO and uh, we were doing lots of different educational products, mostly with professors from Stanford University and Berkeley University who would help us on the curriculum and make sure it was really good. And uh, one day I, I, I took my old Sega Game Gear into the office gave it to the R&D guys, and I said, hey, let's do this, only make it all educational. Awesome. And uh, if you ever looked at a leapster handheld device, it looked exactly like a Game Gear. And, I, of course, I didn't mean for them to copy <laughs> the Game Gear design exactly. I just meant the idea of it with a color LCD screen and, and doing educational content. But anyway, so leapster is very much... Uh, from a Sega product here. Yeah, and it's so, you know, I know your involvement with them probably a lot more minimal than it had been in prior years, but it's, I find it amazing that that company has advanced to the point where where technology evolved, they evolved with it. So I've seen, you know, if I go on my phone right now, I can find a LeapFrog app, and it's just so cool. It's like that, you know, you are, you know, you are literally a giant piece of, you know, making education and video games coexist in the same space and that's so cool to me yeah i really i really like doing that and i also like the idea now with technology we can do even more and uh, what i'm really interested in now is how do we personalize curriculum uh, so we make the we make first of all we make the curriculum game like but then we personalize it so that if, you, if you're a guy who's interested in cars let's teach you how to read car paradigm and have all the curriculum deal with automobiles and car stuff. And I, I think we're capable of doing this today. Yeah, and that's, you know, technology gets better, you know, kids are getting smarter. They're getting smarter and you, I can really, you know, if I give my seven-year-old nephew my smartphone, he does more stuff on it than I even dreamed of and, you know, I was like, how did you learn to do that? He's like, oh, I use LeapFrog and I use ABC, <laughs> ABC Mouse. I was like, wait, what are those? He's like, oh, this educational stuff. I was like, the irony is I'm about to interview the guy who who helped build that company. And he is like, you know, I was telling him, he's seven. He's like, he didn't quite get it. He's yeah, like, I'm sure he didn't care. <laughs> but he knew that, you know, that was something important to him early on in his development. Kid is smarter than I am now. That's great. <laughs> okay. So I want to just jump into those, those say, you know, in the into the midst of those Sega days. And, uh, the way that, you know, console, you know, I'm coming off with all my knowledge is console wars and, you know, just my memories of those era. But my, my first major question I have about the Sega days was prior to Sonic Tuesday, video games didn't really have like a universal launch date. That had a huge impact on the industry because 25 years later, we're still releasing video games on Tuesdays. <laughs> what was the motivation to make Sonic the first game to attempt this? Well, by the way, back then, really hard to do. Uh, today it's a lot easier. But back then, uh, so Al Nelson wanted to 
punch Sonic Tuesday, right? So we had to pick the right Tuesday when the game would be available for that. And uh, and then we had to go figure out how to do this. How do you deliver uh, a new product to 20,000 different retail outlets in the United States on the same day? Yeah. By the way, we did it in Europe on the same day as well. And and so we contacted where our our headquarters was, was very close to um, Emory Air Freight, which is part of Consolidated Freightways. We met with the president and the CEO and said, here's what we want to do. And they thought about that for a while. They had never done anything like it either. But they put a plan together to, to get it done. And so we worked very closely with them. And that's that's how it uh, occurred. You know, it was the, you're right. It was the first time a game was launched on the same day around the world, shipped the same hour around the world. It worked really well. You see, that's, that's awesome. And it, it, it's so impactful. I mean, the only people who refuse to release game on Tuesdays are Nintendo. And it's like they're the, <laughs> they're the last major holdout. They release their games on Fridays. And every other game company, they, they use the Tuesday model. And it's, it's highly successful for everybody else. It's just Nintendo really... It's like there's still a little bit of like spite on their part that they're like, no, Sega started this. We're not going to move to that direction. <laughs> Friday game releases for us. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, in your tenure at Sega of America, there's you know there seemed to be this brewing conflict between Sega of America and Sega of Japan, and it's like this sibling rivalry gone awry. Was it just sheer jealousy that made Sega of Japan undermine SOA's decisions, or was that something deeper rooted? aware of it a little bit while I was there, obviously, but I became much more aware of it after I had left the company and talked with people from Sega of America and Sega Japan. That's when I really learned that what was ha- what had happened was we were wildly successful in, in the United States and Europe. You know, we had a market share over 50%, but in Japan, they never got a market share over 10 or 12%. And so... Uh, the, the CEO, Nakayama, would walk into the, whether it was a marketing meeting or a product development meeting uh, on Monday of each week, and beat the hell out of the guys there. You know, Why aren't you doing things as they doing them in the United States and Europe? And, uh, you know, it, 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 after a while, if you're in those meetings, you get tired of getting beaten up and told that uh, the U.S. and Tom, use my name a lot, are doing things better than they are. And so, of course, you grow to dislike this person across the ocean who is causing the CEO to come in and beat on you every every week. And that, I think, was at the heart of it. And it just simmered, as you said. Uh, and so they stopped cooperating. Uh, or they didn't cooperate with us, and they didn't want to make decisions along the lines that I would have made them had I been in their shoes. So we made, I think they made a lot of wrong decisions because of that. And certainly, it ended up hurting the business in the United States and Europe. Now, speaking of hurting the business, did that actually affect any of the decisions that you had to make at Sega of America? Sure. Uh, I mean, I didn't want to... First of all, I wanted to delay the launch of Saturn for about a year. And instead of being able to delay it, they made me launch it even earlier. So I was going to launch it in the... They were totally had to learn. Remember that they had responsibility for hardware, and we did not. And they, Sega Japan said, "Well, instead of launching it in the fall, you're going to launch it in June." Well, there wasn't enough hardware to supply our 
retail partners, and there wasn't enough software. Both, first of all, there weren't enough titles. And second of all, they didn't have enough produced of those titles to really do an adequate launch. So that was one really big decision that uh, that hurt Sega of America and and hurt Sega Europe and hurt, and hurt the brand, frankly. Uh, it, it gave us a very bad reputation with our retail partners. And that was a that's just one example, and there are many there are others examples as well. Understood. That's perfect answer. Um, so early on, you made some pretty bold decisions right right off the bat. You you removed Altered Beast from the box and you got Sonic the Hedgehog in there. Why were you so confident in that strategy? Oh, you also dropped the price of the Genesis. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah. The, the six part strategy really was to to lower the price, to take Altered Beast out and put. In development, it wasn't quite done yet. Sonic the Hedgehog, the hardware, uh, and to then also produce a lot of sports titles, which Nintendo did not have, and um, do those in the United States. Also, do American licenses here in the United States in our Redwood City office. And then the other part was to go after an older age audience than Nintendo was after. Go after teens and college kids, knowing full well. Uh, if an 18-year-old is playing with Sega and he has a younger brother, your younger brother's going to want to. So, oh, yeah. well, obviously, fire upward. <laughs> and oh. the final part was to make fun of Nintendo in advertising and, and really take them on. Uh, and so those were, those were really the strategies that I wanted to do, and I went over to Japan. And in those days, fortunately, they let me do it. Uh, they didn't agree with it, but they let me. Which, it, obviously, it was successful. That was literally my next question. You guys gave Nintendo the image of baby game makers, and that that's that still exists. If to this day, it's twenty five years later, people are still saying Nintendo makes baby games. Why was that such an appealing marketing strategy? I mean, was it just to to grab those older gamers, or was it really to just you know stick it to Goliath? It really was. Uh, it was both, but it was really to the older age group. And, and again, I, I knew full well if we were successful with teens and college age, we were going to get the younger age pretty well as well. And, and, and also, it was just a lot of fun. You know, It was really a lot of fun to make fun of Nintendo and get them <laughs> aggravated. And they would, they would call and complain and send lawyer letters <laughs> about our advertising and marketing. It was, it was really uh, quite a, I enjoyed it tell you and so did everybody in the company it gave us something to rally around you know to have this this one enemy that we were all, uh, all bent on uh, beating in the marketplace and it, it made for a very exciting atmosphere it was so funny because uh, I grew up a Nintendo kid and you know I see Mario behind you there yeah that's, I'm, a, I'm a still a huge Nintendo kid but as I got older I definitely went back and I started to really appreciate those old Sega games and I remember that the little neighbor kid across the street had a Genesis, and I would always go to his house to play, you know, the the slightly more mature games, like, you know, the better version of Mortal Kombat, the better version of Street Fighter. I would go over there, and my parents were very dead set on not getting us a Genesis because you guys had the older titles. <laughs> so I would have to make my way across the street just to go ahead and get, you know, experience that, and, you know... From there, I, always, I developed an appreciation, like, oh, wow, Mortal Kombat's way better because it's just like the arcade version. Which uh, leads me to my next question, is that uh, you were highly instrumental in the creation of the ESRB. Was that something you felt passionately about 
the uh, the self regulation of video games. Yeah, no, I did feel I felt very passionately about it, and everybody thinks uh, you know we did it just so that we could do uh, uh, you know, really violent games, but that really wasn't it so much. The motion picture industry had a rating system, right? And I felt the video game industry should as should as well. I actually went and visited with a guy named Jack Valenti, who was head of the Motion Picture Association back in the early 90s. He was also a very famous uh, a lobbyist in Washington, D.C. for the entertainment industry. And I said, hey, you know, you've got this great rating system. Uh, can, we, can we use it? And he had set against that. He did not want the video game industry to use his movie rating system. So I contracted with a guy named Dr. Arthur Pober, who is a professor of education in New York. I worked with him in the toy industry before. On the, he was instrumental in the development of all the advertising guidelines. And I said, hey, we need to do a rating system. Can you help me get this done? And so he hired sociologists and, and psychologists and educators uh, and, and put together a way of rating video games. And that became the Sega rating system. But after the experience uh, in Washington, oh, yeah. uh, the industry realized they needed a rating system, and they, they weren't going to use mine, right? They, especially Nintendo was oh. not going to use mine. So, uh, so, but they kept Doctor Prober on. He changed it, changed letters a little, little bit, and that became the ESRB. And it's so cool. I would never have thought that so much development would have gone. You know, so much, so many people, all those different people that you guys had to involve on a rating system, especially if, you know, it just seems like, you know, nowadays it just seems, you know, E for everyone, T for team, it seems natural, but to think that all that work went into, you know, making that, that's incredible. Like, I never would have thought that you had to hire a sociologist to help figure out, you know, age age ranges for certain games. That's, that's really cool. Well, yeah, also, it had to be somewhat independent of the company, right? You, you didn't want it to be just the company's rating system, so it had to be an independent group, and and that's what uh, initially it was, and then it still is today, of course, and now it's a very big organization, and they, and they have to look at an all all kinds of different games, uh, you know, because there's certainly, certainly so many more platforms today, uh, and they, I think they've done a very good job. And, you know, and it's something that I always appreciate is that, you know, I'm in my 30s now. I still get carded, you know, buying certain video games, which I appreciate because it's like the other day I heard some governor say we need to regulate video games. Like we already regulate video games. Why don't we regulate something else that has nothing to do with video games? Because I don't believe video games breed the violence that you claim that they do. Show me a study that can definitively tell me that it does. So and, you know, I'm at GameStop and I see, you know, I'm getting carded, so I definitely know somebody who looks much younger than I is. I am is getting carded as well, and ultimately, it is up the, to the parents to to kind of police their children, let them decide what games their their kids are ready for. Well, and also you you hit on a key point. You're in your thirties. When I st when I was in the video game business at Sega, our average age after we were somewhat successful was about an eighteen year old. It wasn't a child. It was an eighteen year old average. Today, Sony tells me that the average age of their players is 31 years of age. So that means there's a whole lot of players that are over 31, and obviously a, a bunch younger than 31. And that's what—that's the important change that occurred in the video game industry, is we shifted from being child's business 
in every age business and every sex business. Yeah. We have a lot of women playing video games today, lots and lots of them. Um, and this is it's still a, it's still amazing to me that politicians say dumb things like that fellow was saying. I mean, don't they understand this is bigger than the motion picture business today? Yeah. And certainly, we have to have entertainment for adults as well as for children and everyone in between. And it just kills me that they still. Uh, Think of video games as a kid's business, and all oh, those violent video games are going to make kids violent. It's not a kid's business, and by the way, you're absolutely right. There is no study that, that correlates video games to, uh, to violence. I almost uh, just wanted to send him your way. It's like, this guy, this guy literally invented children's video games for educational purposes, and you know he's been involved in all the other side of video games. Talk to Tom, because yeah. this guy can literally tell you that video games can be beneficial, they can be entertainment, and, you know, they, they can be education. They, this guy needs to talk to Tom Klinsky because he, he was blowing my mind, and I literally heard this like a week ago. I was like, I'm glad I don't live in Georgia. <laughs> I mean, and then, of course, the other thing that's sort of, you, you're right, video, video games can be very beneficial. There are studies that show that people who play video games as a child develop technical skills than those who don't. And then also our military uses video games. You know, my, my nephew is a was a lieutenant colonel, he just retired in the Marine Corps, he's an F-18 squadron commander. Awesome. Before they went out on missions, they played video games to in Texas. So, oh, you know, anyway. Well, and the whole flight simulators are basically video games. My, uh, That's what they are. And my friend, you know, he just, you know, spent, he just did a little tour in Fort Benning playing on those flight simulators. So he said, he's like, it's like a video game if video games were scary. Like, really legitimately scary. <laughs> All right. Um, so Sonic turns 25 this year, and he just got inducted into the Video Game Hall of Fame last week. How does it feel to be part of the creation of an iconic and beloved character like Sonic? Well, it's, it's really great. And, and, and I'm, I'm so happy that, it, that Sonic is in the Hall of Fame now. Hall of Fame, by the way, is in the Museum of Play, in uh, the Strong Museum. It's a huge museum in Rochester, New York. If you ever get a chance, go take a look at it. They've got all the great toys from in history there, and, and they have all the video game systems and uh, most of many of the, the games themselves. And so Sonic's going to have a very special place in the Strong. I was in the Strong last fall, and I'd sure like to go back and see do for Sonic. Uh, this one, I'll try to make get to do that. But um, yeah, it's a great honor to have been part of that. And of course, I was just a small part of making Sonic successful. It was really the team we had, both the Japanese team in this case, and by the way, Sonic Two was created by Japanese, but the team that developed the game was part U.S. citizens and part Japanese citizens, and it was done right here in Redwood City. Marketing team was sensational too. You know the Al Nielsen and the Madeline uh, Schroeder Canapa and the Ellen Beth Van Buskirk and the Diane Fernassier. Hey, three women. That's unusual in the video game business too, <laughs> in a company back in those days. And that's something else I'm very proud of. Yeah, Sega seems like it was one of the most progressive companies to work for in the early '90s. Well, I think Sega of America was. I'm not so sure you could say that about Sega Japan, yeah. but Sega of America certainly was. <laughs> but that you know. And the only other video game character that I hold in as high regard as Mario is Sonic. And it's because he was literally punching Mario in the face for like five years straight. 
and you know, and the, the marketing was great, you guys, it was so aggressive, and it was so like in your face, even to the point, as an antenna kid, I was like, they have way better commercials, <laughs> like if you could put them side by side, Nintendo would have like the cutesy commercial with like the lullabies in the background, and then Sega's literally screaming at you, play our games, and I'm like, I'm a kid of the 90s, that commercial's way better, and you know, it was always a struggle, it was like, mom, I want a Genesis, you know, the, the compromise was we got Game Gears. But, you know, there were some great games on Game I loved my Game Gear. Aside from the battery life, I loved my Game Gear. Yeah, I agree with you. Oh, you guys, and it was, you know, Sonic 2 on the Game Gear was a blast. Oh. So, Console Wars, the book, depicts your departure from Sega as being, you know, very, a heartbreaking moment for you, and it's something that you, like, you needed to do for yourself was to leave. Was it too late to, for them to do anything to make you stay? Was it too late to change anything? Well, yeah, I think I think by then it was because too many decisions had been made that I didn't agree with. I mean, everything from I talked about Saturn, but but also, I mean, we I had a deal with Sony where we would have had one machine out, the Sega Sony or Sony Sega uh, machine and PlayStation, whatever you want to call it, and, and we both would have benefited from having software on it. That would have been a terrific move for Sega. And for them to have turned that down was just a big mistake. So lots of different things happened that, that uh, uh, were difficult for me to deal with. And I was just really fortunate that I had this offer from, from Mike Milken and Larry Ellison to form a new company dedicated to using tech education. And I was really in love with that idea. So it was the right time for me to go. But it was very hard to leave all my good friends at Sega and leave them and not know what was going to happen to them after I was gone. Yeah, and, you know, the hard times really seem to have come, you know, a couple years after your departure. I mean, you know, the, 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 the Saturn and then the Dream, ultimately the Dreamcast, and now Sega is, you know, the third-party developer. And that leads me to my next question. Does it, does it feel odd to you to see Mario and Sonic in the same games nowadays? Like they Absolutely. I, I can't believe it. I mean, when I... I guess it was two years ago when, when uh, Sonic and Mario were first in a game together, and I was at E3 show in Los Angeles, and I went to the Nintendo booth, and, and the uh, person who was showing the game said, hey, you want to play against me? I said, absolutely, and I played Sonic, and he was Mario, and I beat him. Uh, and I'd never touched that game before, obviously, but it was shocking to me to see Mario and, and Sonic in the same game. Yeah. Still shocks me. I, can't, I know I, the new Olympic one down in Rio is going to be coming out soon, and it's hard for me to believe. Yeah, and you know, just coming from that era, you know, growing up in that age, just it boggles my mind. It's like, no, they hate each other. Like some <laughs> things, in, some things, like are just you know they're they're set in stone, and that was one of those things to me that's set in stone. And when I see them in a game together, I don't know. I feel. I don't know how to describe the feeling. It's just not really a good one. I was like, no. I miss the days when when the competition between these, these two companies was fierce. And I huh. and I mean there's console wars still going on now. It's just a giant giant arms race, but nothing as intense as what you you guys were doing with Nintendo back in those days. I, I agree completely with you. It, it, it's it's just wrong to see them in the same game. Oh, yeah. And you kind of touched on this just a little bit in a previous answer, but 
you know, the preservation of video game history is sort of a fairly new concept. In your opinion, is there anything we can do to ensure that video games are preserved for future generations? Sure. I mean, I, I know of the, obviously, the Strong Museum is probably because they literally they have every machine. Way back, what was the guy's name? Bear, who first oh, invented Ralph the Bear. first. Yeah. They've got his original prototypes in there. Of course, you move into Atari uh, uh, in there, and, and all the other systems that came out, the ColecoVision, the Intellivision, the, uh, the Vectrex, all that stuff is in the, in the strong, so that's important. And then it's important to recognize which of the software titles were really cutting edge and leading, and I think they're doing a pretty good job of that, but I don't think they have for everything. There's another museum somewhere in Texas that's doing this. Um, I can't remember now where in Texas it is, but there's a, there's somebody putting together a museum of the video of video specifically just on video games in Texas. See, yeah, and, and and it's it's new, like it's a new concept, and I think Blake's book is such a good entry point to like beginning the preservation of the games. There are so many stories in that book that you know we just didn't know about, and. When I, I spoke to Blake a couple months ago, I had him on the show, and he was saying to get, you know, those first-hand accounts, and I was like, that's a great idea. I want to talk to, to see if I can talk to Tom, and one of my favorite stories in the book, and I don't know how accurate it is in the book to how the moment actually is, is you guys had gone to a bar after CES to watch Buster Douglas fight, and it's literally one of my favorite moments in the book. And I was like, I remember that fight. I was about seven. I remember we had a party at the house, and you know, you know, I'm Puerto Rican. We're giant boxing fans, and everybody was there. And it's rare to get us all in a room together, and you know, not it be a sad moment. But there's this epic boxing match, and then Buster Douglas gets knocked out so quickly. And I was like, oh my god, they had you know, reading that, I was like, oh my god, they had so much money tied into that game. Yes. I was like, what was that like? Was it really like that oh shit moment that like it's described in the book or is it, or was it far worse? Oh, it was worse. I mean, it was just devastating. I mean, I thought we were going to have a you know, multi-million million unit seller and instead the guy gets knocked out right away. And for Alan Nilsson's brilliance again, because he comes up with this idea, well, we'll turn it into a positive. We'll make the lemon into lemonade and and uh, it'll be this, this rare Buster Douglas collector edition now. And, and it worked. You know, it, it saved uh, the game. Yeah, and it's just so many little things that you guys did. Like, you you know, and I, I said this to Blake. It's like there are times where I don't think I could handle things with the kind of dignity that, that Tom did. You know, especially walking into the EA office. I would have hit that guy. <laughs> yeah, I did want to hit him. <laughs> it's like, I was like, man, that guy must be the most classy guy on the face of the earth because he, you know, he he takes it all in stride, and he he always seems to him and the team always seem to find a way to spin those negatives into positives and work them out in their favor. And when you guys eventually became the market leader, which you know, it seemed in my you know as a kid, it seemed like that happened overnight, and I'm certain you'll tell me otherwise, but. As you guys progressively became that market leader, you know, I almost wonder why Nintendo couldn't turn their negatives into positive. Like you guys, you know, you, you spun a good yarn and you made them look bad all the way through, and it was, it was exciting. It was exciting to be alive and watching it happen. 
it, it was kind of it was really interesting to me that Nintendo never bothered to really respond. And you don't understand the culture there. It was on us and we were beneath them and so they weren't going to respond because then that would validate what we've been doing well finally then exponentially you know i mean it was after we passed them in share of market they pretty much had to do something so uh anyway it it was a good fight uh, i really enjoyed it yeah and i mean it was a great fight, and you guys, you guys were winning, and you guys were winning consistently for like three years straight. And then the thirty-two X came out, and then the Saturn came out. And was was Sega of Japan doing too much too soon? Was it was it just them doing too much too soon? You know, literally developing these things roughly around the same time. Yeah, they. I think that yes. I mean, I think we could have kept Genesis going for another year at least, and. Feeling in Japan was well. They knew uh, that uh, others were working on 32-bit technology, so they felt we they had to hurry up and get us a 32-bit machine. And thus, the 32X and the and the Saturn too early. Uh, and you know, I think there, there's a story in the book also about you know I tried to get a different chipset into our next machine. Yes, one that was developed by, by Silicon Graphics and the chairman. Jim Clark was a friend of mine and invited us over to look at it. what I thought was a better set, and so did my head of R&D. Uh, but Sega wouldn't use it. You know? And then that became, of course, the heart of the Nintendo machine, 64 machine. Um, so, yeah, just uh, it, a real shame that they panicked, basically, in Japan. Understood. So, this is my last question, and it's actually you know the one I'm most interested in. During your tenure at Sega, what is what are the things you are most proud of? Gosh, so many things. You know what I'm most proud of? Honestly, I am most proud of the team we had. It was such a sensational team of individuals who all went on to be successful in, in other areas after they after they left uh, Sega. Uh, you know, and, and and I think that's so rare to have. Many, many people who were in middle management and upper management went on to be very, very successful at other companies. So that's what I'm, I'm, I would, I would say the moment that we passed Nintendo and share of market and uh, somebody read that report in our, our largest conference room and it was, a, you know, an independent Nielsen source or NPD source, I can't remember which, and we had passed them in share of market. That was a really great that's 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 awesome that's see it's just these little things you know that we never would know unless you know we ask and i'm I'm truly grateful that you appeared with us today you know this was like my dream interview and i've only been doing this podcast for about eight months but you know after talking to blake you know he he's he's he talked you up a lot and i was like you know i love the book i love the story i gotta talk to the man Thank you for that, and thank. And of course, I'm very thankful that story and time to do as much research as he did, interviewing 300 some people to together. So I'm very grateful to that, and, and thanks for keeping an interest going in uh, this period of time, and in uh, retro gaming and in current video gaming. I'm, you know, yeah. Um, 
this is literally probably the most important era in video game history. I mean, everything that's happened since is defined by what happened then, so I don't think we can ever really, truly, we should never forget those console wars. We should never forget that there was a time when it was just two guy, two you know, two companies, one a giant, and one you know, one little David trying to to throw the stone and and knock Goliath off off the top. And it's it everything that follows suit. It's you know, we're still in these console wars. They never really ended, but the intensity has never been the same. So we we should always acknowledge that you guys were the first people to really stick it to Nintendo. Well, thank, again, thanks. You really, you really get it. <laughs> you really understand what that period of time was like. I, I appreciate that. Well, again, Tom, we, I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for your time. Um, anything else that you would like to say to the people listening today? Well, I just hope everybody still playing video games and enjoying them and, and recognizing that uh, uh, this is the one of the finest forms of entertainment that exists. Keep it up. Thank you again, and uh, good luck in any future, any and all future endeavors, all right? Well, thank you, Jess. Thank you, Tom. Well, guys, that's going to be it for this episode of the Splat Zones Nintendo Podcast. Uh, Got to hit you up with these social media links before we go. As always, you can hit me up on Twitter at Nice1983. You can email me at Nice1983 at gmail.com. Go ahead and hit us up on Facebook, facebook.com slash Nice1983 Game Collecting. Don't forget to check out the website, nice1983.wix.com slash gamecollecting. And if you're a fan of the Splat Zones Nintendo podcast, you can always find us on iTunes, you can stream us on Stitcher, and we are now on Google Play Music. We added another format just for new fans. Uh, we hope you guys check us out there, and you can always watch the video versions on YouTube.com. That's going to be it for this episode, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you, Tom Kulinski, for getting on the show, and I hope everybody stays fresh.